with me in prayer. Lord our God, as we come now to the preaching and reading of your word, I ask that you would grant us grace, you would grant us strength, you would grant us wisdom as we seek to learn these things. Fill us with your spirit and so teach us, Lord. Please teach us the truth. In the majestic name of Christ, we ask this blessing. Amen. If you're going to follow along in your pew Bibles, we are still in Ephesians 5. I'll start from Ephesians 5.22. I'll carry through verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, there we have it once again. My hope is to get through these verses today. The topic of marriage. When you think about marriage, and the topic of marriage, there's no shortage of opinions. There's really no shortage of opinions or thoughts about any topic, but if you ask somebody, you ask anyone, their opinion about marriage, you're likely to get an earful. The question is, an earful of what? Because the person's answer is going to be predicated upon their experience in their marriage, or their observation of other people's marriages. You ask one person and you might get an earful of love. You ask another person, you might get an earful of hate. You ask one person their opinion of marriage, you might get an earful of joy. You ask another person, you might get an earful of sadness and sorrow based on their experience. You might ask one person their opinion of marriage and get an earful of wonder. They think it's amazing. You ask another person and you get an earful of bewilderment. They really don't have any idea what's going on. And of course, you might ask one person and you get an earful of hope. They're hopeful of marriage. You ask their neighbor and you might get an earful of despair or hopelessness because they feel as if they're stuck. Or they've been wounded so desperately that they can't see anything else. There's no small amount of opinions on this topic. 
But I, since it's a presidential election year, I thought maybe it would be interesting to just see what a few presidents have said about marriage. You're going to be tempted to laugh at the first quote, do not under pain of my wrath. It sounds funny. Most of you men have said something like this. Ladies, you may not know this, but your men say things like this behind your back, and it's a sin. I'll tell you who said it in a few moments. I have learned that only two things are necessary to keep one's wife happy. First, let her think she's having her own way. And second, let her have it. I've heard many statements to this effect, and it highlights a major problem in the Christian church. We are far too casual about marriage. We are far too flippant about marriage. We think it's a frolicking good affair to joke about it when God takes it desperately and deadly seriously. Funny things happen in marriages. That's okay. But the institution of marriage is no joking matter. And when we <clears throat> echo sentiments like this or laugh at sentiments like this, at least at that moment, we are taking our cues from the world as opposed to God's revealed truth. But there's hope. Let me hear, give you one more quote from a president. I think you'll like this one better. Marriage is between a man and a woman. I am not in favor of gay marriage. This sounds commendable. It's actually very biblical, right? Does anybody disagree with that second statement? Well, guess who said these? The first one is Lyndon Baines Johnson, creator of the Great Society, that Texas man with a nice hat. The second one, I'm going to repeat it one more time. Marriage is between a man and a woman. I am not in favor of gay marriage. That is President Barack Obama. Um, he's obviously changed his mind on the topic, but at least at one time in his political life, he felt it expedient to say these words, and maybe he even believed them. I don't know, but he obviously doesn't have that. He's not singing this tune anymore. These men are men of the world. They're not men of the word by any stretch of the imagination. And if we take our cues from the world... This is what we will get. Now, ironically, what Mr. Obama said, at least when he said that, he was in line with what the Bible teaches. At least at that moment, he was voicing what was clear biblical teaching. It's unambiguous. The Bible makes everything clear about the topic of marriage. We might not like the way it tastes, but there this is the dish we have to eat it. Here are a few quotes right from the Bible of what God thinks about marriage. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's from Exodus 10 or Deuteronomy 5. Imagine if just that one law was obeyed, how much more sane the church and the world would actually be. Proverbs 18. Imagine if men actually thought this. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And then in Matthew 19, the words of Jesus himself, when he is debating the Pharisees on the topic of divorce, just imagine if we took this to heed all the way. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, 
and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Yes, see, the Bible makes everything very, very clear. So as we continue with this household code of Ephesians, we realize marriage is hard. If marriage wasn't hard, Paul would not need to give us these instructions. You buy something and you open up the put-together manual and you get 25 pages of instructions. Unless you're extremely mechanical, that might be a little disheartening. If you get one page, oh, there's five parts. Even I can handle five parts usually. The least amount of instructions, the least amount of parts, the easier it is. Paul gives us some very detailed instructions in Ephesians 5. And the basis is this. God has established marriage as the fundamental building block of a civilized society. It's what we've been going over the last few weeks. Marriage is the foundation of a civilized society. And if that is the case, then we have to base our viewpoint of marriage upon biblical revealed truth and not what the world teaches. You see, we have two choices in anything. We believe what God has said and we base our view on that particular upon what God said. Or we try and figure it out ourselves. I'll leave it to your common sense to figure out which one's a better way to go. The context of this passage is found in verse 17, a few verses up. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is a good verse for anything, but it controls the interpretation of this passage. Paul wants us to be wise. He wants us to understand what the will of the Lord is. Can you think of any time in your life, any situation where it would be not to your advantage to know what the will of the Lord is? Is it ever not a good thing to know what the will of the Lord is? If you know what the will of the Lord is, you have a shot of obeying the will of the Lord. The second question is, can you think of a time when obeying the will of the Lord is never to your eternal advantage? Never. Sinning is never to your advantage. We might think sinning is okay in the short term, but in the long run we know it brings death. So Paul is telling us to be wise so we have to keep that in the background. This, the whole passage is wanting us to be wise in the church, to take our cue from God and not from the world. The second context is in verse 20, 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Remember, this basically is controlling the passage by letting us know that this is talking about us relinquishing our rights and seeking the benefit of others. That's the basic theme of it all. This passage is concerned with us Submitting to God, this passage is concerned with us relinquishing our rights. This passage is concerned with us seeking the benefit of others. This passage is definitely concerned with us fulfilling our God-given responsibilities in God's order. This passage is not concerned with us demanding our rights at the expense of others. This passage is not dealing with us demanding our rights at the expense of others. And frankly, it's not even dealing with our, uh, us demanding our rights, even if it doesn't impede others' progress. But in marriage, there is a hierarchy. I said the H word, hierarchy. There's a hierarchy throughout 
history, in any institution, you have to have somebody leading. That's almost natural law. If you don't have a leader, what do you have? Chaos, anarchy, insanity. Verse 22 through 24. Like I said last week, three verses in the English, 54 words in the English. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. What does this mean? It's not hard to understand what it is, but what does the word submit mean? The word submit, it was originally a military term. And what it meant was the voluntary relinquishing of your rights. I'm pretty sure that's what you do when you join the armed services. You give up a lot of things. You give up your right to dress exactly as you want at certain times. You give up your right to make all of your own decisions. And you take on the responsibility of having to listen to people whom you might not respect, whom you might not agree with, but if they don't give you an immoral order, you have to go and clean the bathroom if they tell you to do so. That's the basic kind of thing. Same thing with the job. You join up a job. You have the right to quit your job. If you don't like it, quit. Go somewhere else. But while you're still there getting paid, you have relinquished your rights willingly and said, okay, I'm here. I will do what you say. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, boss? I think there might be an easier way to do this. And if the boss is smart, he'll listen or she'll listen. But if they don't, the little man must carry the can. You have to do what the boss says. The boss says, go and you go. It really is just that simple. That's life in the real world. Is life fair? No. Is life just? No. In the church, it's supposed to be just. It's supposed to be fair. And in marriage, it's supposed to be far more than either of those two things. This is not talking about a wife putting all of her dreams on hold and letting her life wither and die on the vine. It's not what it's talking about. Is this passage commanding wives to allow themselves to be treated like doormats? No. Is this passage commanding wives to allow at any time their husband to raise their hand to them? No. Is this this passage at any time Commanding wives to enable their husband's extended adolescence, their continued childhood. No. Is this passage commanding wives to not have any opinion on any topic whatsoever that's contrary to their husbands? No. Is this passage concerned? Is this passage teaching? That a wife respects the person and office that her husband holds in the family. Yes, that gets at the heart of the matter. Because if you look at the end of the passage, when Paul is wrapping everything up, he says, and let the wife see that she respects her own husband. Submission and respect are basically the same thing. 
And ladies, what you have to understand is that when you submit to your own husband, it is as to the Lord. That simply means that when you obey this command, you're not really submitting to your husband. You're submitting to the Lord. You're obeying the Lord's commands. Now, I have to say from the outset, if your husband tells you to do something that's immoral, something that is against God's law, what do you think you should do? You tell him, no. No man has the right to tell his wife to break God's law, to do something that's immoral. You're not required to do that. Not whatsoever. Furthermore, this passage is talking about the voluntary relinquishing of one's rights. This is not talking, this is not giving husbands license to demand and extract submission and respect from their wives. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about a voluntary willingness to do so. And it really has to involve respecting the man as a man and respecting the place that he has. I've heard this said. I was never in the service, but I was a Navy brat for about six years. So if you've been in the service, let me know if I'm wrong on this one. I heard my father once tell me, I salute the rank. I don't salute the man. Because I asked him, I said... I said, that guy seems like a real numbskull. And he said, he is. But he outranks me. I salute the rank. I do not salute the man. There are two aspects to this, ladies. There is the office or the position, the rank that the man has been put in. As the leader, as the head of the house which is a very weighty responsibility. You have to understand that. And the other is to respect him as a man. This is is something that I think a lot of wives do not really grasp. Now, do you have to love your husband? Yes. But ironically, this passage doesn't tell you to love your husband, does it? No. But it's already covered by love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, It's, it's always, God always has everything covered. But respect is very important to men. It's very important to men. If a man feels as if he's being disrespected in his home, if a man feels he's being disrespected in any sphere, he, that really, I'm telling you, that really gets to him. Most men, that's a big thing. A big thing. And you have to respect the position that God has placed him in. And respect means realizing what it is and what it entails. What the weight of his responsibility actually is. It also means encouraging him in these things. Encouraging him to gently point out to him, Hey, by the way, you do know that you're supposed to be the leader here, right? This one's really not on me. This one's actually on you, particularly with regard to spiritual headship of the house. This is on, on, on you, champ. And gently point out, I need you to be the leader. God wants you to be the leader, and I'm willing to, to, to follow you. Just let's start making some wise decisions, please. And one of the real things you can do, ladies, is to simply pray for your husbands. Pray for them. This is a weighty responsibility. A lot of people think that this is about the man being the boss, about being like Ralph Cramden and and demanding things in the home. That's really not what it's about. 
That's, that's completely antithetical to what this passage teaches. This passage teaches almost like an alternating current between a husband and a wife. Respect going one way, love going the other. Respect coming back and then love going back. And if it gets short-circuited in one direction, it gets short-circuited in both directions. But respect is at the heart of what a wife is to do. And the reason is that the husband is head of the wife as Christ is also head of the church. This is a metaphor. This is talking about the position of leadership. Christ tells his church what to do. What does he tell people when he's on the earth? Follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And people did. That's what this is talking about. It's not when it says headship, this has been misused, as I have pointed out in the past few weeks. This is not about a man demanding things. Besides that, a lot of people want to be a boss in the corporate world. They actually get to be a boss and they realize, oh, I am not cut out for this. I reached my level two notches back. Or I can do this, but I really don't want to. Because when you're the boss, when you're in charge, you can't blame anybody but yourself. If the ship hits the rocks, it's not the cook's fault usually. And ladies, that wasn't a quip that you're supposed to be in the kitchen. I was just thinking of someone on a ship downstairs, you know, cooking cheeseburgers for the entire crew. And the ship goes on the rocks. He, he had no idea. He's downstairs making hamburgers for the entire crew when the place hits the rocks. So let's talk about husbands for a little bit here, shall we? In the English, it's nine verses and 174 words. The basic command is to love your wives. Gentlemen... I just told your wives that you really want to be respected. So now I'm going to tell you, your wives really, really want to know that you love them. They want to know that. They want to see that. And guess what? God commands all of those things. Husbands, love your wives. And how are we to do it? Oh, this is fun. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Ooh. This goes a little bit beyond Hallmark cards and chocolates on Valentine's Day. This goes way beyond remembering your anniversary, remembering birthdays. This goes way beyond taking out the trash. This goes way beyond you even doing what you're supposed to do. Ladies, this is a tall glass of water for your man to drink. He's going to do it very imperfectly. That's why he truly needs your prayers. Because the weight of responsibility is clearly on the man. I really wish it was a 50-50 proposition. I'm a man. I'd love it to be a 50-50 proposition, but it's not even close. And I think I said last week, I don't know because the recorder went out, but gentlemen, if you actually do what you're required to do from verses 25 to 33, your wife will respect you. Everybody you come in contact will respect you. Some people will envy you. Because Christ thought himself of no consequence. Christ laid aside his rights, and Christ always fulfilled his responsibilities. Christ laid his life down for his bride. 
He laid his life down for the church. He died for you. Do you believe that he died for you? If you haven't, trust him now. If you do, then that is the pattern for our marriages. Again, ladies, if you could see the look in your husband's eyes right now, it is precious. Terror. Mind-numbing terror. I can see some of you aren't even like, no, I'm not going to listen to this one. No way. No way. I've got to be like Jesus in my home? Yeah. Yeah. What this is talking about is, gentlemen, when you don't have enough to give, um, guess what? You still have to give some more. And when you reach that level, guess what? You have to go some more. So, if you come home after a hard day at work, crack open a cold pop, watch TV, and something needs done, and it kind of falls under your purview, if you have sons, you can ask them to do it. Honestly, you can. You're training them to be men. Um, But, ultimately, it's your responsibility to make sure that it gets done. You see, here's what happens in marriages. Now, this passage has been used to abuse women. But my experience has been in the Christian church that the vast majority of women have more experience with passive, irresponsible husbands than they do overbearing, abusive ones. Passive, irresponsible husbands are a relatively common complaint of a Christian wife. Now, as a pastor, I'd rather deal with someone who's passive and irresponsible than abusive because I really can't deal, I can't cope with that at all. I get very, very angry at that. But passivity and irresponsibility are ruled out of court here because Christ was not passive in his mission. Christ understood what his mission was, and we need to understand what our mission is. Our primary function is protection, provision, preparation. And preservation. Ooh, that's four P's. Protection. It's your responsibility to make sure your family's safe. It's responsibility to make sure your wife is safe. Just like Christ made sure that his church was safe. To provide. It is a man's responsibility. Primarily to put bread on the table. Christ fed his flock. The flock didn't feed him. You see, Paul is getting at deep theology here. And he's showing us that the relationship between Christ and his church is to be the mirror effect in our marriages. Christ provided the food. Christ himself is the food. Christ prepares his church. We see this from this passage. Gentlemen, we have to prepare our wives and our families for what? Well, for a couple of things. One, for the day that we go. Because if the statistics show us right, we're probably going to go first and our wives will be left without us. There's more widows in the world than there are widowers. It's just the way the world works. Largely because of the weight that's on men's shoulders. It really does crush us, to be honest with you ladies. It just crushes us. Man can rise to the hop of the corporate heap. But by the time he's 65, he is absolutely shocked if he's been playing corporate hardball for 30 years. He doesn't have any gas in the tank left at 65. All he can do is play golf, maybe shuffleboard. And then he's pushing daisies a few short years after that. 
That's to prepare them for the day of judgment. It's our responsibility to be the teacher in the home. That means we have to know more than our wives with regarding spiritual things. And if we don't, we need to be making the effort to do so. You see, we're going to fail. But if our wives see us making the effort, they will have more respect for us. But if we're not making the effort, then, I mean, if someone's on the job and they're, not, they're just flopping off and doing nothing, do you have any respect for them? And this is a job of jobs. We have to preserve. We have to preserve the doctrine of the covenant. We have to hand down the doctrine of our covenant to our wives and to our children because our wives in the main spend more time with our children than we do. In the main. We have to preserve the Christian unity. We have to preserve the Christian witness in our homes. You see, it's all about the relationship between Christ and His church. That's the key to the whole thing. And when you realize that, everything falls into place. And all of the weight, not all, the vast majority of weight falls on my shoulders and my brother's shoulders. So ladies, you have to pray for us. And you have to encourage us. It doesn't... <laughs> i got to put this. Being harassed is not the way it's supposed to be, guys. Your wife shouldn't have to harass you or berate you into fulfilling your responsibilities. It shouldn't be that way. We should be willing to do what God has called us to do. And if we are willing to do this, then love will just flow out of us. And by the way, both of these roles are not predicated upon the reception of the corresponding duties. How does the church treat Christ very often? Are, are we always obedient? Are we always submissive to Him? Or do we rebel against Him? Do we put Him on hold? Do we ridicule Him when we sin? Yes. So gentlemen, here's the way it works. <clears throat> and this isn't... I, I know you wives. This is not you. This is a caricature. The Christian man is married to a wife who absolutely has no respect for him or herself or anybody else. She's just a harpy. Just always going on and on and on. Guess what? He has to love her with the love that Christ shows the church. And the flip side works as well. If a Christian wife is married to a guy who is just passive, childish, irresponsible, she still has to respect the office that he holds. That's not easy, is it? It doesn't have to be that way either. Be wise and understand what the will of the Lord is. We know what we have to do. Now we have to do it. Now, gentlemen, we're in this together. We're not in this together against our wives, by the way. But we need to encourage each other in our journey. Really, the look on some of your faces is priceless. It's just like, like all the hope is going to... It's like, oh, no. I don't want to hear this again. No. I don't want to hear this again. Please get through verse 33. I can see it. Please get through verse 33. Go on to the kids next week. Please, I'm begging you. Don't worry, kids. I'll get there eventually. It's a great mystery. But Paul wants us to focus on what Christ has done for the church. That's the ultimate goal. To keep Christ in the church in view. And when that happens, the rest of it 
makes sense. It won't be easy, but it makes sense. And what it does, it is also makes us appreciative and more loving of what Christ has actually done when we realize that he does more than we could ever dream of doing. I heard once of a lady who, a widow, who um, had, to, had to bury her husband of like 40 years. They married young, he died young. He died in his early 60s, 62, 63, something like that. She had to bury him. He just died. Corporate heart attack. Boom, just went. On the day of the funeral, as is the custom in Western society, the, the family and close friends went back to the house for, for the meal. It's kind of, kind of customary. House or church or sometimes a restaurant. The widow could not eat a morsel, couldn't, couldn't drink a drop, just didn't want anything to do with it. She quietly slipped away from the group. Her best friend of many years, who was also a widow, noticed that she was gone. So what do you think she did? She went to try and find the widow to make sure that she was okay. This was a rough day. She found her friend of many years on the back porch, watching the snowfall, crying like there was no tomorrow. So what would you do, ladies, in that point? You put your arm around her, and what do you say? It's going to be okay. It hurts now, it will always hurt, but you'll begin to develop a settled resignation after a while. Widow shook her head and said, not crying because I missed him. I'm crying because I feel guilty because I'm glad that he's dead. I'm crying because I feel guilty because I'm glad that he's gone forever. I feel guilty that I'm glad that he's buried and has finally met his maker. That man provided for us. I never lacked for anything, but he never said a kind word to me for years and years and years and now he's gone and I do not have to hear him anymore. Gentlemen, may God give us the grace that when we're laid in the ground that our wives will cry for us because they miss us and not because we're gone and they're glad for it. We can do it by God's grace. Let us pray. Almighty God, you've given us deep things to think about. And we do ask for the grace to fulfill our roles in the household economy that you have given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.